Harvey's family could not help but notice his detachment from matters that usually held his interest. When not studying, he seemed preoccupied, as though mentally he was living in one world while physically he was in another. He spent all his free time, after fulfilling his routine affairs, in special research libraries that were made available to him through his associations. One morning, on casually sorting the mail which the postman had delivered to his home, his attention was suddenly arrested by an envelope whose postage stamps indicated that it had come from France. With great expectation, he hurriedly tore it open. He read its contents half aloud. If you came to Paris and found it convenient to call at the studio of Monsieur, the professor of languages at such-and-such boulevard Saint-Germain, he might be able to tell you something of the circle of which you inquire. Certainly, a letter to him announcing your coming, by date and name of boat, would be courteous. This was a letter in reply to one Harvey Lewis had written to the editor of the Parisian newspaper. He had asked the editor the simple question, How can I learn of the method to pursue which will secure guidance to the Rosae Crucis? Why had the editor responded to such a question from an unknown person in America? Was it because of the peculiar mark, a kind of symbol which Harvey had placed upon his original letter? He recalled that it was a symbol which he had seen in a dream. Possibly it had only come from his own subconscious memory, the result of his research about the Rosicrucians and what he had read. It mattered not. At least here in this letter in his hand was a possible key to unlock and reveal the secret which for months had haunted his consciousness much of each day. Harvey immediately responded to the letter, exuberant in his appreciation, and expressed great pleasure that the Order Rosae Crucis apparently existed, and there was one who might direct him to it. Day by day the words rang through my mind, If you come to Paris. The words appeared before my eyes in the dark and seemed to dazzle in letters of red across every sheet of paper I held in my hand at times of introspection. He'd been praying for some such event, some such turn of fortune, but with his satisfaction there likewise existed the realization of the economic problem, the journey to France. His second child, a daughter, Vivian Sybil, had been born but a few months before. To leave his wife and two young children for this great adventure would mean a sacrifice for them, for his resources could not provide both for them and the journey to Paris. A week later, a solution to the problem came about. It was so unexpected that it seemed miraculous. It was like a part being fitted into a jigsaw puzzle, a part that completed the design. Aaron Lewis, in addition to being a professional handwriting expert and authority on the detection of forged documents, had also become renowned as a genealogist. Mr. Percy Rockefeller, son of the famous millionaire John D. Rockefeller of Standard Oil fame, had expressed an interest in his family's history. On behalf of his father and family, he had engaged Aaron R. Lewis to do genealogical research, that is, to trace in Europe the origin of the Rockefeller family. 
Aaron R. Lewis was well-versed in the French language, fluent in it, and his wife Catherine was well-versed in German. Each summer, for several years, this team of researchers traveled through European countries consulting official records, tracing clues, consulting reference libraries, and compiling an authentic Rockefeller lineage. This year, 1909, Catherine Lewis could not accompany her husband to Europe. Someone else with a research mind and literary ability should assist Aaron in his genealogical labors. Aaron approached his older son, Harvey. Would he go to Europe with him? This was just one week after Harvey had received the letter from Paris suggesting that he journey to that city to further his quest. He related, I could visit Paris, my mind free and easy, my desires to be gratified. Surely this was a demonstration of a Rosicrucian principle. I wrote once again to Paris, this time announcing to the professor my coming on the steamer America, leaving New York on July 24th, 15 days hence. There was a great flurry in Harvey's home. Molly responded nobly, assuring him that he must take advantage of the journey. He need not have any anxiety over their welfare. After all, her mother and his family lived in the vicinity, and in the event of an emergency, she would be quite secure. This put him at ease, and Harvey prepared for what proved to be the adventure of his life. There were incidents on board the steamer that mystified Harvey at the time. Though perplexed by these, yet because of his anticipation of the experiences he was to have in France, he did not thoroughly analyze them or attach a great significance to these shipboard happenings. One of the passengers, tall, dark, impressive, apparently an East Indian, made his acquaintance. There was an enigmatic air or aura that seemed to surround this passenger, which intrigued Harvey. His jovial pleasantries and positive avoidance of any subject pertaining to the occult gave me no reason to believe otherwise than that he was an East Indian but my attempts to draw him out along occult and especially East Indian philosophical lines gave him a very intimate acquaintance with my own philosophical ideals and beliefs. Before disembarking, Harvey had asked the other passengers whose acquaintance he had made to inscribe their names to a picture of the steamer. My foreign companion suggested that, in addition to this, I might desire his name and address on a separate card. I agreed that it would be more than welcome. He then tore a square sheet of heavy foreign paper from a notebook and wrote what seemed to be his address and a few words under his name. This I automatically placed in my wallet and not among my miscellaneous papers. I never thought to study its intent or meaning. One could do little but think automatically, dreamily, when he spoke or directed. His father and Harvey arriving in Paris, the latter then lost no opportunity to press for information about the Order Rosicrucis. He could not immediately seek out the professor whom he had been directed to meet. He first had the obligation to assist his father in Aaron's technical and genealogical research. But Harvey queried everyone whom he thought might have heard or known something about the Rosicrucians. In fact, 
He did not even confine such inquiry to any one class of people, such as scholars or professional persons. Of one such incident, he wrote, In the hotel, I found a young woman, possibly 16 years of age, scrubbing the floors of the lobby early one morning. Pursuing my usual method of testing and searching, I stood where I could watch her face, and I said slowly, Rosi Crucis. She hastily arose to her feet, stood erect, and faced me with that serene but awe-inspired expression that I have since then seen upon the faces of several Vestal Virgins. She said not a word, but waited for either a sign or word from me. I knew of nothing else to do, and she slowly dropped down to her work and paid no more attention to me. Harvey Lewis continued his query of different persons he met about the Rosai Crucis while assisting his father in the performance of the latter's duties. No one gave him any direct response, but by their reaction to his questions and to the name of the order, they apparently knew of it. Because of their reticence to speak of it, he wondered if they honored or feared it. Of one thing, he was certain. Rosai Crucis was not dead in Paris. Harvey stood hesitatingly before the address that the Parisian editor had originally given him in his letter. Here he was to meet Professor X. Was this to be a great revelation? Was this to be a fulfillment of a long-cherished dream and ideal? Would this person really disclose the whereabouts of the Rosicrucians, or for some reason would he evade the question and again precipitate Harvey into an abyss of suspense? Harvey was delighted to learn that Professor X spoke English fluently. He thereupon quickly informed the professor that he had been directed to come and apologetically explained that he had just written him recently that he would call. He was asked into a small office partitioned at the rear of a store. As I walked the length of the store, I noticed that the walls were banked from floor to ceiling with beautiful mahogany and glass cases within which hung very beautiful etchings, fine photographs, and an occasional watercolor. Professor X is a man of fine build and fair height, typically French in his appearance and demeanor, I judged him to be about 45 years of age. After extending the usual French hospitality and the completing of brief formalities, the professor came direct to the point. And why do you seek to know a brother of the Rose Croix? he asked. Somehow, at this most critical moment, Harvey Lewis found it was difficult to epitomize his purpose. The more he spoke, the more he felt with a sinking feeling that he was not impressing his listener with his real purpose. In desperation, he began again. But, Professor, I only want, desire, to learn how I may proceed if I'm ever to have my fond hopes realized. I make no demand now for admission into the Order. I ask for no rare privilege or honor at this time. I come to you only as a seeker for knowledge, for light. The phrase... For light seemed to change the entire demeanor of the professor. There was a kinder expression, a more tolerant attitude toward what Harvey considered to be his mission. 
In the account which Harvey Spencer Lewis has written regarding his mission to France, he relates that the professor then interrogated him extensively. He asked for credentials regarding Harvey's associations. Having presented the usual credentials carried in his wallet by an American citizen, the professor brushed them aside as plebeian and not worthy of the particular occasion. He said, And have you not a paper there which does not resemble the others? Harvey Lewis's account continues. I thought a moment, and I seemed to discern his meaning, for the strange light in his eyes was unmistakable. It meant that I did have, that I could take from my wallet that which he fully expected to receive. What was it? I thought rapidly. It seemed like a resume of my whole life and all that had ever been given to me. But in a flash, one thing stood out before me, the square piece of paper which the foreigner had given to me on the steamer. I have this, I replied, as I drew it from my wallet. It is only an address and a few lines of other writing, I added, as I noticed for the first time that the writing below the name and address was in the form of a sentence. Perhaps this is what you mean. The professor confirmed that that was what he had meant, this particular piece of folded paper. He impressed upon Harvey that he must preserve it, for it would have great value to him. Other than that, he said nothing more of it. 